This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I think that core challenges for a new Biden administration in the U.S. quite broadly is to think about how we're going to recast relationships with countries like China and, quite frankly, the U.S.-Europe alliance. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. 2020 unfolded in a way no one expected. As the year comes to an end and a new one begins, it's time to look back at all of 2020's biggest security and foreign policy issues and look ahead to issues likely to make an impact in 2021. I spoke with three preeminent scholars to assess the old year's challenges and the ones likely to dominate the headlines in the new year. Joining me are two of my CSIS colleagues, Sarah Ladislaw, Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy and National Security Program, and Stephanie Siegel, Senior Fellow with the Economics Program. Also joining me is Laura Coupe, Counsel on the House Homeland Security Committee. Laura, Sarah, and Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me for my very favorite podcast of the year, The Look Back and The Look Ahead. We'll start out with each of your focus areas. What do you think were the biggest three foreign policy and security issues of 2020? Sarah, why don't you go first? It's a good question because there was a lot going on in 2020 that obscured normalcy. I mean, it's hard not to say that the response to COVID wasn't the biggest and most strategic, you know, sort of insight for all of us who work on issues of global cooperation and watching how the world did or did not cooperate was certainly quite instructive, particularly for me who thinks a lot about climate change and common goods challenges. So I would definitely say that COVID was obviously the first. I think also this sort of initiative to to start thinking about building back better and what was really important to me about, you know, that foreign policy issue issue and and sort of collaborating around the rebuilding of the global economy is it started to bring to the fore a lot of things that were subtextual, you know, last year, which was, you know, this the basic idea that, you know, we we have to think about building resilience into the global uh, economic system, into the physical infrastructure system. And it, it really sort of changed the way we think about the functioning of, uh, of society and the opportunity to sort of reinvest. I mean, if you remember the U.S. and other uh, other countries around the world were having sort of a pronounced conversation about the Green New Deal when we met last year. And quite frankly, this year, it's not necessarily the same type of uh, conversation, but having, you know, a movement towards building a more resilient future in the wake of a global pandemic, obviously, has been, you know, really important and interesting. And then finally, you know, I think that we talked a lot about this last year, and I think it really solidified for, for me this year, the very different place that, you know, China occupies in the world and how every country in the world is going to have to try and figure out that relationship anew. Well, again, you know, once again, that was a big theme for the work that we've done over the course of 2020. And Sarah, bringing up China brings me to Stephanie, who said last year that the three biggest foreign policy and security issues were going to be China, China, China. Although I can't imagine, Stephanie, you thought in terms of a global pandemic, right? I was not necessarily thinking uh, pandemic, but I I think China still makes my my top three. But there's a lot of overlap, actually, with my 
answer now with what Sarah just said. And of course, you know, COVID kind of dominates the thinking for this year and looking ahead into 2021 as well. I think, you know, one, one aspect of COVID is that it actually made clear when folks talk about transnational threats and threats that don't necessarily mind borders. I think it's been kind of a hypothetical for many people and COVID really made it quite tangible in a very, in a very painful way. But I think there is, you know, to the extent there are reasons to come out of this crisis thinking more positively, I, I think there's an appreciation that we need to take these transnational threats seriously and invest in prevention because not doing so has a much greater cost. I think also when we talk about COVID, there are reasons to take a step back and think about the response to COVID. You know, we, we in my program cover kind of the economic aspects of these issues. And of course, we know the, the scope of the economic shock is pretty much unprecedented, but also unprecedented is the magnitude of the response. So we've seen a massive amount of policy response globally, in particular from advanced economies, but trillions of dollars in support that have helped cushion the impacts. But there's also the fact that advanced economies have been able to respond in a way that many low and middle income countries have not been able to. So I, I think as we're looking into 2021 and looking at how we recover, I think addressing the fact that global inequality will have worsened as a result of this pandemic is something that we need to be thinking about and prioritizing in our policy response moving into 2021. So for, you know, COVID is my number one. I, I think US-China is still, as I mentioned before, in the top three. I think the big surprise from this past year, and I think there was the phase one agreement in the US-China deal, I think had been agreed right around the time that we spoke last year. It's amazing in some respects that deal has actually held, which I think is a surprise given the overall deterioration, further deterioration in the bilateral relationship. And, and I think we can talk a lot more about that and what it means kind of moving into a new administration. And then the, the third, I know there are a lot of things that are competing for me, but I think the outlook for the US, that's not, you know, kind of an international risk, but I really think a focus on what is happening in the US and are we going to be engaging from a position of strength or not? I, I think that's a real big question mark. And we've got, you know, this is not shaping up to be the smoothest political transition. I think that presents some real risks for the United States. But depending on how that transition is managed, there might be some real opportunities there for the U.S. to show leadership and be able to, to really corral some cooperation on some of the priority issues we need to deal with. All right, Stephanie, Laura, your three. Yeah, I think Sarah and Stephanie already touched on the fact that, you know, COVID is something that we all, you know, had to reckon with that we didn't expect with. And definitely from a U.S. government perspective, the way that the United States responded probably wasn't, and I, again, I'm speaking in my own capacity here, wasn't the most coordinated. And not only did that have impacts in terms of how the U.S. responded to it, but 
also just basically also impacted how the world, I would say, collectively answered towards, you know, how the pandemic was handled. And I think also developments like the U.S. pulling out of the World Health Organizations and just not cooperating with allies like it once did to combat issues like pandemics definitely had a lasting impact. I think another reality is just also thinking through the impact that COVID-19 has had on a lot of our societies, especially Western countries. I think we saw that communities that were already vulnerable beforehand have suffered the most. So in the United States, communities of color, particularly the Black community, suffered more COVID deaths disproportionately. And the same thing we saw actually when it comes to the topic of transatlantic relations, the same that those same trends we saw in the UK where Black and other minorities also disproportionately died from the virus. So I think that is definitely one thing um, that Sarah and Stephanie and I definitely agree on. I think Stephanie also touched on the topic of China. I think it's been really interesting in this past year to see how the U.S. and Europe in particular have talked about China and it's, I would say, how how its posture has changed economically, politically, militarily. And so I think it's been really fascinating to see that. And just something interesting from the lens of my committee, the Committee of Homeland Security, is, for example, that China is increasing its posture in the Arctic. And I think that's a development worth noting because China has uh, now launched one of its nuclear icebreakers and the U.S. fleet, when we look at the U.S. Coast Guard, doesn't necessarily have the same type of icebreaking fleet that China and Russia have. And then also when it comes to the Arctic, they're also very interesting environmental issues as well. And in particular, when it also comes to China and Europe, China has also made its presence known when it's come to its investments in critical infrastructure in Europe. So particularly in Germany, there had been longstanding discussion about whether, for example, the Germans were going to allow Chinese companies to have a have a stake in their critical infrastructure when it comes to, for example, communications like 5G. And then I think also just to add on to what Stephanie said, I think especially when it comes to the topic of transatlantic relations, the fact that the United States, especially in the last four years under the Trump administration, had more of an antagonistic stance towards the European Union when it had came to topics like trade or President Trump criticizing countries like Germany not meeting their 2% GDP commitment when it came to defense budgets for NATO, it definitely put in a dent in that relationship. And I think that dent has definitely led to long-lasting I would say challenges, I don't want to call it harm, but we'll we'll kind of see what will happen with the Biden administration. But I think the United States having doubt about the transatlantic relationship was something worth noting. And it'll be very interesting to see how the Biden administration will engage with key allies. Laura, actually, when I was thinking about my third choice, I was debating between kind of domestic developments in the US and Europe. So she she actually named the one that I, I wasn't able to put on my list. But I think she makes a, a great point. I think the relationship, US relationship with Europe, I think under a Biden administration, it's been clear that Biden-Harris administration will prioritize alliances and working with allies and partners in a way that I, I don't think the the Trump administration has, and in particular on issues around China and the approach to China, I, I think that that could be a potent way to, to actually make some progress in shaping China's behavior. 
But as Laura also mentioned, I, I think there is some mistrust in Europe about U.S. intentions. And I, I don't think that that necessarily goes away with a new administration. You've heard language from Europe being much more assertive about its sovereignty, whether it's talking about its its currency and um, the fact that it's really bristled at some of the sanctions that the U.S. has imposed, or on a range of economic issues, there are a lot of tensions there that are not necessarily going to go away. So I, I think you know the U.S.-Europe relationship is going to be really key to achieve some of the the Biden foreign policy goals, and it's not a guarantee that it's going to be smooth sailing. That is a very good point. While we're on Europe, I was originally going to ask because all of you mentioned China about how to deal with the China relationship with the U.S. going forward. But since you brought up transatlantic, we'll start there. And the biggest transatlantic issue right now is, at least in my mind, is the the whole whether there will be a no deal Brexit and what the implications of that may be and how that will impact all of the issues that you just mentioned, Stephanie, in terms of the trust and the reestablishing um, uh, better ties that Laura mentioned that have been strained um, over the past four years. So let's start with Brexit and whether we think there will actually be a deal between the UK and the EU before the December 31st deadline. Laura, I'll start with you on that. Sure. So I think I always tell folks when I track what's going off Brexit that it's literally it changes minute by minute. So like if one looked at the news from this weekend, things looked dire uh, in terms of there not being a deal. And then yesterday, EU Commissioner von der Leyen and, and the key EU Brexit negotiator, Michelle Barnier, said that there was cautious optimism. So to be honest, it's a like you never know type situation. But as of right now, there is a cautious optimism. However, there is still that looming fear that having no deal is a possibility. And I think folks are are mentally preparing for that possibility. And just so if we have listeners who don't know exactly what's at stake, what would it mean if there's no deal between the UK and the EU when the Brexit deadline hits on the 31st? Sure. So I think if folks aren't fully aware about like what Brexit is in general, that the UK basically decided to leave the EU and that this has been basically a process that has been ongoing for the last couple years. So some people talk about it as like a divorce. So basically with any divorce, you got you have to negotiate what the terms are of the separation and so since that referendum that happened in the last couple of years, the EU and the UK have been deciding key terms of how that separation was to happen. And so throughout the negotiation, they've talked about terms like, for example, like for EU free movement law. So in terms of, you know, what happens to British citizens that live in the EU or EU citizens that live in the UK, what that looks like. So there are different terms of that. And so this latest round of negotiations have focused on some of the thorniest issues. So that includes trade uh, and Stephanie, feel free to jump in there. And then also fisheries. So clearly the UK is surrounded by water and so are a number of other European countries. So basically, what are the terms around what fishing will look like? But especially when it comes to the trade aspect, they really want to make sure that as this topic gets discussed in terms of just in terms of the fair trade aspect, but also looking at like 
labor standards, environmental standards, and just kind of seeing how how are British companies or British entities supposed to act when engaging with the EU market. And so again, that, as one can imagine, is very tricky because there there's lots of money and also the economies of countries at stake. And so that's why there are these these ongoing negotiations, because again, Britain wants to posture itself the best way possible, but then the EU also wants to protect its industries and companies and and workers. And so if there is no deal when it comes to British products going into the EU, that means that tariffs will be imposed. And the best way possible is again, to have terms and agreements around how that would happen. But if there's no agreement, so basically the the default would be going to the conditions of what the World Trade Organization has. But that increases just basically the the possibility of just having more stronger tariffs or just having more customs checks. And that is not in the interest of a lot of, you know, the businesses and companies involved. So basically the ideal would be for the EU and Britain to come to terms that they both can agree with when it comes to topics like trade and what border checks would look like. But if not, the WTO conditions would be the default, which, you know, may hurt British companies in particular. And Stephanie, let me loop you in because of the issue of trade, because that impacts the transatlantic relationship and the UK's relationship with the US. And it also brings in China because, you know, with all of this going on, there's still the question that I originally was going to bring up was, you know, how does the world interact and deal with China in the way that it is conducting business these days? Yeah, I I think on Brexit first, I, I think the kind of broader, the 40,000 foot point here is that we're, we were going to have a global economy in 2021 that is going to be struggling to recover. I think there's, you know, reason to be optimistic because of developments on the vaccine front, but we're going to be digging out of a pretty deep hole. And when you have kind of the potential for a further shock stemming from, from Brexit, and Laura mentioned some of the, you know, kind of the uncertainty that would result not just from higher tariffs, but on some of the kind of standards treatment, that is not you know, kind of imposing a further headwind on economic recovery to the UK, but also, you know, not good for Europe, not good for the global economy, I think would be, again, adding a further headwind when what we need are actually, you know, kind of winds at our back to really ensure a strong recovery. But on the US-China aspect here of trade, I mean, I, I think you've got You'll have a Biden administration that is inheriting tools that were put in place under the Trump administration. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion over the tariffs in particular and whether a Biden administration would roll back the tariffs. Um, I, the answer to that initially, I think is, is no. And I think there's a lot of kind of shared skepticism when it comes to China, shared skepticism in a kind of bipartisan sense. So I don't think with a change in administration, I don't think we're going to see, you know, a desire to re-engage on the same terms as before the Trump administration. But engage, I think, is maybe the the watchword there. I, I think there will be more appetite to engage, if for no other reason than I think there is an appreciation for the necessity of engaging with China, if nothing else, on some of the the transnational threats that we were talking about before, and in appreciation of the fact that 
recovery, global recovery, recovery in the United States is going to require a concerted effort to have all countries contributing to that recovery. And that contribution comes in the form of, you know, addressing the health needs first um, and vaccines, global distribution of vaccines is going to be a big piece of that. I don't think that happens at scale or speed without China taking part. And then on the economic front, once you have the health piece addressed, the economic recovery is going to require the largest economies in the world, which, you know, US and China, we need demand from those countries. And, and currently China is actually running massive trade surpluses right now. We need demand from China to actually support the economic recovery. Um, and so I, I think engagement will be an important, <laughs> important piece of, of that recovery. I think it's going to be engagement on, as I mentioned before, kind of different terms and with an appreciation of the fact that there's a lot of skepticism toward China in a bipartisan sense in the U.S. right now. But it, but I think engagement will be part of the equation. Sarah, let me bring you in on this question because climate change issues are a part of this entire conversation and China has a role to play there as well. I think it's really interesting to listen to Laura and Stephanie. You both have really, you know, good views about the moment in time that we're in where, you know, it's hard to see the world sort of reverting back to a place where the normal operating environment, both for trade, but also multilateral institutions will sort of fully snap back in place. I think that that to me, over and above, you know, what people are looking at as terms of like pivot points from 2020 is the most important takeaway. It does seem that the the world going forward is going to be sort of breaking off into different strategic planes here. And I think that core challenges for a new Biden administration in the U.S. quite broadly is to think about how we're going to recast relationships with countries like China and quite frankly, the U.S.-Europe alliance which, you know, I think over the course of the Trump administration betrayed itself as having really deep fissures along, you know, different lines within Europe and different lines within the United States. It's very hard for me to see how a Biden administration is going to have it's a very big challenge speaking with one voice for U.S. foreign policy going forward as it relates directly to creating, you know, durable alliance structures with Europe and, quite frankly, how it engages with China. And I think that's going to continue to be a challenge this year. I'm really interested to see how these relationships respond to what will be a more conventional approach to foreign policy by a Biden administration. And quite frankly, like it'll be a more conventional approach to foreign policy, but with some really ambitious goals, right? So on the issues that I work on, like if you think about you know, what it would take for the U.S. to be net zero by 2050 in terms of greenhouse gas emissions or China, you know, to be net zero by 2060 in greenhouse gas emissions. That's like nothing short of really changing the underpinnings of the global economy, right? If you wanted to be, you know, net zero by the end of the century, maybe it would happen over a gradual basis. But this is a real sort of, you know, sea change in how we think about the underpinnings of the economy. To, to think about doing that in a partnership 
way with countries that have tried to lead on this issue and have effectively led on this issue, like across Europe, or countries like China that are that seek to strike a leadership role for themselves in global, you know, climate issues as along with you know many other issues. Then, then that would be one thing, but but they're not going to be just genuine partnerships, right? They're going to have all of this contentious background behind it that I think Laura and and Stephanie, you've both pointed out, which is, uh, you know, not just what are the disagreements that we know we have between countries, but what is each country still grappling with in their domestic environment that doesn't allow them to sort of fully lean into a new strategic direction, right? So, for example, you know, the EU has the most comprehensive approach to thinking about global climate change issues. And still, they have to kind of consistently work at making uh, and selling that very bold vision at home domestically. Like China has lots of global ambitions. Like it's hard to it's hard to tick off all of the ambitious goals that they have for themselves and, and the things that might show up in a 14th five-year plan. But at the same time, you know, they they really do have a lot of domestic political and economic difficulties that they're going to continue to have to grapple with. And you know, here in the United States, I just, you know, you look forward with a little bit of trepidation, although I like to try and be be hopeful about the progress and I do think there's areas for progress to be made. But you know, I think the biggest outcome of our election is showed it like how deep deeply divided the country is, right? I mean, here we are, you know, having to wait till midway through December after a November election for the Senate majority leader to, you know, agree that the president elects the president elect does not bode well for our politics. And so I, I, I worry about our ability to resolve big international global issues in a very sort of uh, cohesive way, the way that we like to think about it in foreign policy communities, when the reality is the world's major economies are still you know, very much having to deal with fractured politics at home. And the fractured politics at home is not unique to the United States. I would venture to say that globally, there are fractured politics in almost every country. But I mean, let's pull the string on that, Sarah, that you brought up about how what's happening at home impacts what gets done abroad or what does not get done abroad. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, again, I'm going to try and stay in my climate and energy lane here a, a little bit. I, I think, you know, take a look at what the Biden administration wants to do on climate. It's extremely ambitious, right? It's not simply about what the goal was under the Obama administration, which is to, you know, make a significant down payment on the U.S. strategy to reduce its own emissions and to be able to get a global climate agreement that they were able to achieve in the Paris Climate Accord. It's about actually showing that the world is not just on a on a path to, you know, reducing emissions on the margin, but deeply transforming the way in which our economies work, right? And and that's a big, big agenda. And it's a it's an agenda that would be difficult to reach if we had all engines of the U.S. economy and the U.S. you know political apparatus moving in that direction, and we don't, right? I mean, we have a fairly reluctant sort of uh, legislature, you know, born out of sort of re- Republican skepticism on our ability to deal with the climate issue. I think we'll be able to get a few things accomplished, but it certainly won't look like what everybody you know in the analytical community knows would be the least cost pathway to getting to to deep decarbonization. It won't even you know on. Unfortunately, the, the odds are it won't even likely look like what you know some Republican leaders have said is the clean energy competition that the U.S. should try to be involved in and try to compete with China and other countries to you know be the creator of battery technologies and new vehicle technologies and 
nuclear energy technologies and wind and solar and all the like, it won't even look like an extremely aggressive approach legislatively to tackle challenges uh, on, on that side of the equation and, and go after this, this sort of shared opportunity that we all see. It's much more likely to look like the Biden administration, you know, using their sort of executive branch authorities through regulation and through embedding, you know, the social cost of carbon and other, you know, key criteria for dealing with both the impacts of a changing climate and then also, you know, trying to drive as much emissions reduction as possible. The administration has, again, like I said, some really ambitious goals to not just rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, but to drive sort of new axes of activity in terms of global greenhouse gas emissions reduction. But the, the the reality is going to be that with divided government continually on this, they won't be able to put forward, you know, everything that they, they wanted to. I will say the one caveat to that is, you know, and I mentioned this last year, the private sector is, you know, is, is pretty resolute in the sort of arc of the narrative here. They know uh, both here in the United States and in other parts of the world, a little less so in developing economies, that this is, you know, that a lower carbon environment is where we're headed. And so so even under the you know the Trump administration, the global energy community, global financial institutions, large banks, they all sort of recognize that we we're definitely going to have to pursue a low carbon future. We're going to have to think about risk that climate change presents to our economies and our societies, and they're all skating in that direction. They're just sort of doing it in the absence of policy clarity. And when you think about you know, what, what climate change is fundamentally about. It's about, you know, risk mitigation, and it's about taking advantage of the opportunities of creating a new economy. And unfortunately, like you can see in, in places like Europe, when you put all of that together, you can have a cohesive sort of, you know, viewpoint on how to do that. When you look at the United States, it's much more sort of all over the place, and it's much harder to sort of see how we're going to be able to effectively take advantage of those opportunities in the face of, uh, of not really sort of agreeing on the fundamental approach to doing it or not being able to, to sort of legislate it at the federal level. The other you know piece that's hopeful here is if you look across the world at cities and subnational communities, you're again, you're seeing a little bit more decided action in terms of trying to change the economies in U.S. states and states in India and other places around the world to take advantage of clean energy opportunities and really think about dealing with the impacts of changing climate. And so it, it's a it's a weird place to be where you've got sort of more agreement in the private sector, more agreement across the financial sector, more agreement across the subnational sector. And then, you know, just this sort of like weird inability to get federal governments and our federal government to be able to sort of act on all that interest out there. Well, as we wrap up here, my final question for the three of you in trying to there's no way to anticipate the surprises for 2021, but I would ask each of you in your respective areas to look ahead and tell us what we should be paying attention to that maybe isn't on our radar screens right now. Stephanie, would you like to start? Sure. Gosh, again, I feel like there's a long list of things to to choose from here, but maybe I'll I'll actually stick with the US-Europe relationship. I I really think that this is one that we have to get right, because I think to make progress on some of the massive issues that we're talking about right now, whether it's with regard to climate, whether it's, you know, showing a willingness to address some of the legacy issues coming out of COVID-19 on kind of debt overhang and kind of the health response or when it comes to getting China to be a responsible actor, I think that relationship is really going to be 
crucial. Um, and as we were talking about before, it's not guaranteed that we have kind of a like-mindedness across all issues. So I, I think managing that relationship and really kind of prioritizing those issues where we have some tensions so that we can address them and not let them get in the way of dealing with some of these other big issues, I think is really going to be critical. Laura? Building on what was just shared, I think definitely looking at the U.S.-Europe relationship, but also looking for opportunities to to discuss issues that have not been talked about before. I think one key thing that I think a lot of Europeans and I think Americans that have represented us on the global stage have not been comfortable talking about is our demographic changes. As a millennial, as a first-generation American, as a Black woman, I noticed that there's a hesitancy not to talk about topics that actually did come to the forefront this summer, like with the George Floyd protests. There were not only protests happening in the U.S., but they're also happening in Europe as well, where communities of color also talked about social issues impacting them and talking about things like racism. And I think those types of discussions are very critical as well, in addition to talking about, I think, the typical foreign policy issues like economic issues or the military or our defense issues. I do think not talking about those real demographic challenges or or not even challenges, demographic changes and realities, I think can't be swept under the rug anymore. I think even looking at the forces behind what led to Brexit, a lot of a big underlying issue was demographic changes and immigration and migration. And I think especially if Western democracies, which of a lot of them are multicultural, don't really talk about the tensions of that and how that relates to far right movements or populist movements gaining foothold. I think not having real discussions around that is something that could have consequences that we have not been prepared to maybe think about. And I think even looking at the forces of the rise of far far right leaders or more populist leaders in Eastern Europe, I think those are realities that we have to be more comfortable talking about and talking about the the challenges that those things bring. And then I think another thing in the U.S.-Europe context that needs to be talked about more in addition to China is also talking about the African continent. By 2051 and four, people on this planet will be from Africa. And I think if we don't talk about Africa more so as a partner, and then also just seeing how young the continent is, and it's a lot more digitally connected and more urban, I think if we don't really talk about the continent in a more holistic way, that also will lead to more global challenges. And then not to mention, China is also very present on the continent and investing in infrastructure. And I also think it's important that the US and Europe not talk about, you know, Africa as like as a pawn, but really look at as African countries. And again, that there are 54 African countries, but to look at them as partners and really think more critically around that, especially it comes to topics that even Sarah works on, like climate. You know, Europe has has seen unprecedented migration from the African continent. So I think just being a little bit more willing to also tackle those topics as well, because they're not going to go away. Very important, Laura. Sarah? Yeah, I want to 
pick up on something Laura said, which I don't, it's not my, <laughs> it's not my bailiwick in the work that I do, but I spend an enormous amount of time thinking and talking about it because it does seem, you know, as an analyst looking out at the community of, you know, issues that we're all dealing with, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, trying to bring a community of democracies together. And I, I think that could either go very poorly or it could go very well. The, the very, very poor version of that would just be sort of a platitude filled summit of defending democracy vis-a-vis or relative to to authoritarianism and other systems of government. A a really effective form of that would be talking about building inclusive democracy. And when you look at all of the challenges that we're facing and some of the issues related to demographics that Laura was talking about and and the ways in which those are going to continue to shape the political realities for countries, it goes back to, you know, what we've been talking about since the great financial crisis, which is we have to find a way of making society more equal, not not simply because it's the the right thing to do, but I genuinely think that being more inclusive about our democratic system, being more inclusive about our economics will solve a lot of the problems that we face today. And and so I I think if that agenda gets off the ground in earnest, where we're bringing in new communities and voices to solve old problems, not, you know, not just for sort of nice speeches, but really you know, bringing in different perspectives to be able to help address some of the issues that we have or like really thinking about the way in which our economy functions and works for, you know, works or doesn't work for people or the way our politics function and and work and don't work for people, the way our international institutions, you know, represent different voices. Uh, There's so much opportunity there, right? And so I I do think that that's the the big, you know, the big opportunity and the way to sort of reset the global table in 2021 is to be more inclusive about our conversations so that it guarantees that we're not just having the same conversation all the time, which is where we're stuck. And so I, I, that actually makes me feel quite hopeful. And I would be very pleased to see if the next year, you know, incorporated that idea of sort of reconstituting our systems to, to address issues of inequality, but, you know, really think about inclusiveness in terms of our politics and the way that we think about solving some of the world's you know, global challenges. And on that very hopeful note, let me thank you, Laura Coupe, Sarah Ladislaw, and Stephanie Siegel for being here on this very special, as I said at the top, this is my favorite podcast of the year to do. Thank you all so much for being here and happy new year. <laughs> Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.